This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today, we'll talk about lentil agronomics with Dr. Perry Miller of Montana State University. Long story short, 1.5x seeding rate was the economic optimum by by the time you considered seed, you know, additional seed cost and what the yield response was. So it suggests that we're probably leaving some yield potential on the table by going at our, our old traditional recommended seeding rates. Dr. Perry Miller is a cropping system scientist in the Land Resources and Environmental Sciences Department at Montana State University. He does a lot of work around crop diversification strategies and says a big chunk of that work includes working with pulse crops and how they can work with other crops, especially wheat, to grow better. We featured part one of my interview with Perry in episode two of this season about crop diversification and fertility. Today, we're going to focus on lentil agronomics. Specifically, we'll talk about the work Perry has been a part of on seeding rates, rolling timing, even a little bit on sulfur applications and winter lentils. Perry really is a wealth of information from years of practical farm research. Back in that first episode, Perry described the important role pulses have played in reducing summer fallow in Montana, and we'll pick up right where we left off there before diving into lentil agronomics specifically. So summer fallow uh, stores soil water. That's that's the, the main, I would say, virtually the only reason that we do summer fallow anymore in the places where it's still commonly done. It doesn't store that water super efficiently, but it's you know usually about 25-30% of the total precipitation that occurs during that fallow period. About 25-30% of that can end up in the soil under a good no-till system. But that could be two inches of additional moisture, maybe you know pushing up to three inches of additional moisture. And if you look at the water use yield response for something like wheat, it's probably going to be at least six bushels per acre per inch. So if you had a couple inches of water, that's real money. So now the pattern of water storage within summer fallow, it tends to, uh, Montana is a very spring-centric rainfall pattern, especially the closer to the Rockies you are. And by that, I mean the rainfall tends to peak in May and June. Then we get uh, something like 40% of our total year's precipitation in those two months. As you get out into northeastern Montana, where pulses have been common for longer, that, that rainfall peaks up just a little bit later, but it's still, it's one spike. Uh, if you get down to central plains, they can get these bimodal spikes because they get some uh, systems coming up out of the Gulf of Mexico that never back up this far in, into Montana. So we really just get that one spring spike. So summer fallow is going to have peak soil water content somewhere in mid to late June. Because that's about when your rainfall peak has occurred and now things are starting to get hotter. So evaporation starting to occur. And so you'll actually lose water. If you just go out there and say measure water every two weeks in that summer fallow period. From that peak in June, by the time you get out into September, you'll be at least two inches less than what you were at that peak soil water content. So that suggests, you know, why don't we put that two inches to work, right? And so that's sort of the idea behind putting in a shallow rooted crop like a pulse crop that does respond quite well to to in-season precipitation. Uh, You can actually get a a, a good return uh, for a crop on water that you would have otherwise lost. Now, at the end of the year, if you've got a deep soil and you measure, you know, how much soil water have I got behind that lentil crop versus how much is there behind chem fallow, again, that number about two inches is what comes up. Especially if you're in deep soils. Uh, So north central Montana, what we call the Golden Triangle, the major wheat growing region in Montana grows 50% of all our wheat acres in in that Golden Triangle. 
very deep soils. Um, there, summer fallow will almost always have at least two inches, maybe three inches more available water than after lentils. As you get into shallower soils and coarser soils that you can have in northeastern Montana, that difference isn't as great. And I've actually seen a research report lately out of uh, the USDA ARS Research Center up there that's suggesting it's not even detectable. So that, that water value goes away in some of those shallower soils. So you're, you're really, you know, summer fallow costs you money, right? You have a sprayer out there, you got the spray cost, there's, you don't harvest anything. And so if you can actually have a crop situation where you can make any amount of profit or even break even, you're ahead of summer fallow. And as more and more farmers started growing lentils in the rotation instead of summer fallow, Perry says the early lessons about growing the crop included being mindful of herbicide carryover and making sure to apply an inoculant. Two of the, the biggest things or, or, or easiest mistakes to make, uh, one is herbicide residues. So you need to know what your soil residual herbicide history is because there are some persistent herbicides. And lentil tends to be a little bit the canary in the coal mine when it comes to uh, herbicide residues. If, you, if you've got something uh, in the soil, lentils will usually respond to it. It's just it's not a super vigorous crop that way. And so you really want to be sure you've got you know, a good handle on what that history is. The other uh, easiest mistake to make is to not apply a rhizobial inoculant in a way that actually gets that bacteria in a living fashion onto the seed or into the soil in a way that can interact with lentils to help it fix nitrogen. I would say our growers in Montana tend to be well past that stage now, right, because they've been growing these crops for 15, 20 years. But uh, back in the day, those were the two biggest and most costly mistakes that were quite easy to make. Today, Perry says they're more looking to optimize the operation. One interesting area of this that he's been exploring is rolling timing and its impact on yield. That's something that's been on the, on the back of my mind for quite a few years now, because when you grow lentils, uh, to maybe to a lesser extent peas, but also quite commonly with peas, the practice of land rolling is an almost an obligate practice. Because you're harvesting at such low cutting heights, you don't want to take dirt clods or rocks or other objects into the combine because that can be very damaging and, and I mean, that can be very costly. So uh, what producers will do sometime after seeding, will roll that land with a heavy roller. And that roller usually has somewhere around 350, 400 pounds of down pressure per linear foot. So, I mean, it's a pretty heavy item that goes down and pushes rocks and things back into the soil matrix so that you've got a nice flat surface for harvesting. And we've known for a long time that it's, it's, it's a near obligate practice for lentils because they're so short. I mean, they're only a foot tall. So, you're going to be setting your combine header on the soil surface and there's different headers that do a better job. We won't get into that. But so, rolling is this common practice. But when you try to find information on when is a good time to roll, when is a bad time to roll, there's just been very little research done on this. And most of what was done was done way back in the 70s in tilled soil conditions. So it's hard to know how that relates to no-till. So that, that's something that I wanted to look at. And so uh, when there was a large project going in for a specialty crop research initiative, I was able to attach a lentil agronomy piece to it that looked at both roll timing in concert with uh, different seeding rates, because that's another, uh, we're seeing some other areas in the world that are you know, up in Saskatchewan and Australia that are seeing benefits from higher seeding rates for lentils also. So we're able to look at both those factors together. There were all kinds of opinions about rolling. 
you know, never do it in the morning. Um, never do it just when the crop's emerging. They're just, you know, you can't do it past a certain leaf stage. But no, no information on, you know, really when is a good timing. So at three locations in Montana for three years, uh, we did uh, five different timings. Well, four roll timings and then uh, a no roll control. And what we found was the other was that old wives' tale or rumor or whatever it was that said, don't roll right at, at sort of the first emergence of those lentils or the soil. Yeah, we, we saw a small hit there in terms of uh, yield loss. Uh, not at all sites, not every year, but overall, I think it was, it's, you know, something 10% or less. So not, it's not a total game changer, but it was, you know, enough to, to matter. And in the same, if you rolled too late. Well, why would you roll late? You know, it, it can be wet, it can rain, a producer can forget about a field. Yes, that can happen. That has, I, I remember talking to a fellow a few years ago where his lentils, he just forgot about a field that he planted and and he wanted to roll it, but it was already flowering. Like My opinion was, yes, you have to roll it because you've got rocks, you don't want to damage your comet, you have no choice. But I couldn't tell him how much yield loss he might suffer from that rolling. And so we we did simulate a late rolling stage also. And again, it was a smaller effect than I thought it would be. And it was, again, it was in that 5 to 10% yield loss range. So of the timings we went with, it was right as the lentils were emerging. That was a, a bit of a sensitive time. Or if you got uh, at the 10 leaf stage, or I, you know, we didn't test past the 10 leaf stage. But that was the two timings that showed a little bit of sensitivity. But overall, not as much as I would have thought. And I guess I might have thought there was a price to pay for rolling. So, you know, it's our research plots, you know, our research centers tend to be very flat level areas where we don't have much for rocks. So I would have thought that the no roll treatment would have been our highest yielding treatment. And then, you know, all the rolling would have paid some sort of yield penalty. But no, that that didn't happen. And we could get away with harvesting quite efficiently in that no roll treatment. And there was no yield advantage in our situation to doing that. And we're going to get back to the conversation that Perry alluded to about seeding rates. But before we do, what exactly did they find here in this rolling study? So the earliest you can go, right, is immediately after seeding, right? I seed my lentils and then I roll immediately. And so we did look at that timing and there was no harm from that. You know, the next earliest is probably somewhere around emergence, right? When those lentils are just starting to poke through the soil. And I think the worry there is we did this with uh, sea shank or knife type opener. So we created a furrow. And so if you've got a furrow and that, that lentil's just starting to come up in the bottom of that furrow, then I come along and squish soil on top of it. You know, am I covering up that tip that's just trying to emerge from the soil? That could be a very confusing thing for, for a plant. And that's probably is what happened where we got a small negative yield effect there. And then we looked at rolling also about two weeks after emergence and didn't see any problems. And the next timing we did was a later timing, you know, simulating something that's getting out closer to flowering. Usually lentils are flowering somewhere around that 12 to 13 leaf stage, and we, we did the 10 leaf stage. And you heard Perry mention earlier that even in their trials where they have flat level surfaces and very few rocks, rolling still seemed to be beneficial to yield. So is there something else happening here that the rolling is doing that actually somehow helps the plant produce better? Or is it just the harvestability, which is the primary function of rolling? So if it was going to be a positive effect from rolling, it would have to have something to do with improving seed to soil contact, you'd think, right? And so, you, you know, are we getting better emergence? We looked at that and no, there wasn't a measurable effect there. And so one thing we did do is, you know, we did make sure we were rolling uh, in the afternoon, making sure the foliage was dry. 
you know, you'd worry if you got wet foliage, uh, you might inter- induce some sort of disease reaction if you create some wounds in the plant leaf material. So we did roll when the leaf material was dry. So we, we minimized that aspect, but it just uh, it just didn't cause as harmful effect, I guess, as, as one might think. And this was specific to lentils. So lentils are a small kind of wiry plant. You know, it's hard to crush that tissue. I don't know. So we probably should look at it with with peas also, because that's a bigger, more succulent stem. Maybe you could do more damage in peas. Well, let's get back to that seeding rate discussion that Perry had sort of teased earlier. He looked at five different seeding rates and found out that the recommended seeding rate in a lot of cases was probably not enough. So uh, standard seeding rate for lentils, we're shooting for a stand of, of somewhere around 11 plants per square foot. So that you you want to put enough seed in play to get that kind of density, and we looked at I mean, we did a half x, so a half seeding rate, three quarter seeding rate, a full seeding rate, and then a two x seeding rate. No, one and a half, two x. We had five rates, and uh, my colleague uh, Maurice Borgo, who is up at she's she's uh, was at at Montana State University, is now taking an endowed chair position up at, at the University of Saskatchewan. She took all our data and put it together in a paper that's just just been submitted. And long story short, about that 1.5x seeding rate was the economic optimum by the time you considered seed, you know, additional seed cost and what the yield response was. So it suggests that we're probably leaving some yield potential on the table by going at our, you know, our, our old traditional recommended seeding rates. I would actually like to see a little bit more work on this topic in more locations you know, to make sure it just wasn't our three locations where that came up. But it is consistent with some recent work that's come out of Saskatchewan. It's consistent with some work that's come out of Australia that suggests that, you know, the economic optimum for lentil is a, is a little higher than what we've been accustomed to thinking it is. And this prompted another question for me, just more generally, about how often will seeding rates change over time based on the price fluctuations of seed and the market price of the harvested product, uh, both of which I would think are important variables in determining optimal economic seeding rates. Lentils is kind of a are, are kind of a unique crop that way, in that the seed typically doesn't command much of a premium over the farm gate market price. There's a cleaning fee, a bagging fee, a little bit of you know you have a little bit of profit for the seed cleaner. And I and I've learned this from talking with seedsmen that supply lentils. But for them, you know, if, they, if they're selling you know lentils at X price uh, into the seed market, or if they're selling it just into the open market as a food crop. That gap isn't very big. And so, you know, those two prices, I think, are going to move up and down together. And so playing the guessing game of what the seed price is versus what, you know, I can sell it for, I suppose that could change enough during a growing season to, to matter. But I don't think it's that big of an issue. But if you had a crop like peas, those two prices are really different, right? There's plant variety protection rights embedded there. There's, if you're growing peas for seed, you want that high price. You don't, you don't want to have to take your seed at the end of the season and sell it on the open market. So we already discussed some really practical research with seeding rates and with rolling timing. And I wondered what's next for Perry's research on lentil agronomics. I mean, what questions is he still asking himself about how we can optimize production of this pulse crop? The one thing I, I guess I would like to know a little bit more about you know, we have a lot of stripper headers being used in wheat now. I don't know if you know what the, that's where we basically leave that wheat stubble full height. I'd like to know what the impact of that is on lentil production because I think that's going to stretch the lentils up a little bit, make them a little easier to harvest. 
that year old uh, wheat stubble tends to thresh very easily. And so I, I just, I wonder if that harvestability might be a little easier uh, in that strip wheat stubble. And I haven't really looked at that. I think that's the one, you know, if you talk to growers, it's always about the harvest with anything that's that short. You know, understanding what headers to use for your situation, you know, even if you shatter a fairly small amount of lentils and, you know, figure that out on a per acre basis, that can add up to, uh, you know, quite a lot of money that you're leaving on the ground. So I guess that would be the one thing I'd say is just pay close attention to your harvesting methods. Right. And and you wonder if maybe the stripper header will actually create a better harvestability than for the lentils going into there. I, I would like to test it before I say that, but as I think through it, I see, yeah, it seems like it could. Yeah. And he added he'd also like to see more research emphasis on winter crops as well, including winter lentils, winter peas, and winter canola. You know, I, I, I have, I have um, well, I've grown in, in different situations, I'm sure at least 50, maybe 60 different crops, just playing around with them, trying to understand where they fit. The warm seasons are really tough to make work, uh, at least in the north central Montana, northeastern Montana, tougher to make it work in those regions because we tend not to have rain when those crops are actively growing. You know, I would like to see more emphasis on winter crops, winter peas, winter lentils, winter canola is one that, that I'm starting to get pretty excited about because of the yield potential for that crop versus its spring planted counterpart. I do know some success examples for people growing winter lentils. It's still a bit of an experimental practice. Uh, the breeders are trying to come up with hardier types of lentils that will survive. We've got a, a good breeder here at MSU, Kevin McPhee. There's there's breeders out in the Palouse region also that are that are working on this topic. So, winter lentils are not a they're not commonly done. I would hate to say what percentage, but it's less than five percent of the acres. But I do know of cases in Montana that for some years now that have grown winter lentils, and and the yield advantages can be remarkable. Um, I was involved in a research study. Quite some years ago, we had two locations here in Montana, two in Washington, and uh, there was some really dramatic yield increases, you know, with winter lentil. You know, there, I think the variety development's probably the bottleneck on that right now. So, yeah, I think we could we can do some more with dicots. Um, from a rotational perspective, it probably is going to matter how we manage those crops too. And so, we're just finished up a study where we looked at some actually quite small rates of sulfur fertilization, five pounds to the acre. So really affordable stuff. And we saw some pretty significant improvements, not only in lentil yield, but also in the actual nitrogen fixation. And that's a whole other, you know, area of science to measure that accurately. But we've got some smart people here, Clay Jones and his students who measured that. And so the significant increases in that nitrogen fixation. So even if that sulfur didn't increase the yield, you know, what would that increase in the nitrogen fixation be worth? Because that's very likely going to show up in the next crop. You know, there's questions like that that we need to know more about also. And now this is a great example of why we wanted to make two episodes out of Perry's interview, because it seems like around every corner, he's just dropping little hints of other very interesting work that he's been doing. In this case, I wanted to know more about this sulfur and nitrogen fixation. I mean, I could show you pictures, side by side plots. You know, plus five pounds of sulfur, which is, you know, that's a small rate, minus those five pounds, and it's light green, dark green. So it can make that kind of difference. And was a sulfur deficiency showing up in a soil test there? So, boy, now you're, you're opening up a whole can of worms when you start talking about sulfur soil testing, because sulfur is incredibly variable in the soil substrate. So trying to get an accurate test is really difficult. 
And that was part of, of course, of this study where we were looking at sulfur. We, we had everybody measure their sulfur. And, and it turns out some sites that were low in sulfur, yeah, they responded. But we also had sites that were testing, you know, way in the sufficiency range that also responded. And then we had sites that were low in sulfur that didn't respond. So I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done around sulfur. We don't even really understand the the optimal tissue concentration levels. And, I, and I'm parroting stuff that Clay Jones, uh, our soil nutrient uh, extension specialist, would tell farmers here in Montana. But even that that basic understanding of what's a sufficient level of sulfur to have in in the growing tissue of a legume plant is is not really well understood. I had a, a sharp student uh, a few years ago do a survey of, in this case, it was pea producers in Montana, North Dakota, over a three or four year period. And, and he asked them all kinds of questions about their fertilizer management practice. And he ended up with 150 independent fields in that study. So we were actually hoping for 500, but we only got to 150. And of those, only 60% said they were using any fertilizers at all, like phosphorus or, or anything to grow um, their pea and lentils. Of that 60%, almost 100% of those were using phosphorus of some type. Phosphorus has well-known pop-up effects for, for increasing seedling vigor, and those things can translate throughout the growing season. In terms of sulfur, I think that was only 60% of the 60% were applying any sulfur. So that's that's thirty six percent right of total pea production in a in a very significant uh, pea production area. It's a simple change. Like five pounds of sulfur is going to be less than five dollars an acre, even at today's prices. I'm pretty sure. So if you can get two hundred and fifty pound yield increase from lentils from that, I mean, oh my goodness! If you can increase nitrogen fixation by, I don't know, fourteen fifteen pounds, you know, that's probably going to matter. All right. Well, that's going to do it for part two of this interview with Dr. Perry Miller. Really enjoyed that. I hope you got a lot of value out of that as well. Thank you again to Perry for being on the show. And we'll go ahead and link to his website to to learn more about any of the topics discussed here today. Also, I hope you checked out part one, which is episode two of this season of Growing Pulse Crops, uh, because that was a fantastic episode as well, as all of them are. In fact, we hope that uh, you are subscribed to this show so you don't miss any of these episodes, including our next one, with Dr. Barney Geddes. We're trying to build a translatable knowledge base that can lead to improvements in the industry. So that's been a big focus for us is competition. These are living organisms that have to come into our environment, right? And thrive there somehow and stick around for the growing season. At least in the case of rhizobium, the plant makes a nice home for them. In other biologicals, you're just hoping that they can kind of stick it out against the rest of the microbiome. But thinking about that competition and and what allows a microbe to thrive in a new environment is something we're starting to do a lot. Potentially, through doing that, we can find elite ones that aren't just great at fixing nitrogen, but are also really well adapted to thriving in our soils, right? Um, And if we can do that, then I think there's a lot of scope for improvement of the inoculants that we're using here. So make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd sure love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or both. And feel 
free to tweet us by using the hashtag growing pulse crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. 